The Lifestylist, episode 99, featuring Sharon Salzberg. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Okay, before we dip into this super chill meditative trance with our guest, Sharon Salzberg, I need to get you hyped for a couple of my upcoming appearances. First one being the Noya House Hollywood on November 2nd, 2.30 to 3.30 p.m., where I'll be presenting my brand new Lifestyle Design Level 1 Urban Biohacking Boot Camp. This is where I'm going to teach you how to create a healthy and natural way of life while living in a big city. Now, this is a totally free workshop, but you must RSVP. They don't let bums just wander in there. It's a members-only club. It's kind of fancy. So to get in, just go to lukestory.com forward slash events to sign up. Now, space is really limited because, you know, there's only so much room. So hurry up and get yourself registered to avoid getting dissed. Next up is something I'm really, really excited about. It's one of my all-time favorite festivals out in Malibu Canyon, and that is Mercado Sagrado on November 4th and 5th, where I'll be presenting Elemental Alchemy, Biohacking Your Water, Air, Earth, and Light. Mercado Sagrado is one of the coolest events I've ever been to, and I've been doing some pretty badass stuff in my life. It's a lifestyle celebration in the canyon spirit featuring musical performances, handmade and artisan goods, organic food, lectures, workshops like mine, film screenings, experiential activities such as intuitive reading, sound baths, aura photography, vibrational medicine with things like amp coil and all kinds of rad stuff. It's mind-blowingly cool. So to get in, go to mercado-sagrado.com to get your tickets. And remember, anytime you need tickets or any information on any upcoming appearances or speaking engagements that I'm doing, you can always easily and quickly find them at lukestory.com forward slash events. So get over there, get yourself signed up, and I will see you soon. It's time for a shout out to my friends over at Organifi.com. Everyone knows that green juice is good for you now, right? You see it like in 7-Eleven. There's green juice everywhere. I love my green juice, but there's a couple problems with it. One, it usually comes in plastic, which is less than ideal. Two, it's loaded with sugar. A lot of these green juices that you think are healthy have like 25 grams of sugar. That's like a green Coca-Cola. Not good. But mainly the issue with the green juice phenomenon, for me personally, is that they're not very portable. Even if it comes in glass and it doesn't have sugar, I have to drink the whole thing at once if I'm in my car or I'm traveling or something like that. So they're just not quite convenient all of the time. And they'll just go bad if you leave them sitting there. So what Organifi has done is created this amazing superfood green juice blend that comes in a powdered form in a little packet that you can just throw in a bottle of water or any other drink and make an instant super powerful green juice. So it's got 11 superfoods. It doesn't have any of the swag extra stuff that you don't need. It's just the stuff that you're actually going to feel. So it's got turmeric, chlorella, wheatgrass, spirulina, mint, moringa, ashwagandha, lemon, beets, 
little matcha green tea for an extra kick there, some coconut water for electrolytes and potassium, and then it's sweetened with monk fruit, which is awesome because it doesn't spike your blood sugar. It's got like a low glycemic index, unlike some of those green juices I mentioned. So it's a really great product. I've been using it for months. You've probably heard me talk about it before. I want to share an opportunity with you to save 20% if you want to check it out. All you have to do is go to Organifi.com and enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout and you're going to save 20%. So that's Organifi.com with an I, not a Y. Use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 20%. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. You and I, my friend, are so fortunate. Myself, because I get to host the Lifestylist podcast and sit down and talk to brilliant and fantastic people like Sharon Salzberg. And you, because you get to kick it in your car, on the train, on the bus, on a plane, in your room, in the womb, wherever you happen to reside presently, and listen to these conversations, which I personally think are quite enlightening. This episode being no exception. Our guest Sharon is a central figure in the field of meditation. She's a world-renowned teacher and New York Times best-selling author. She's played a crucial role in bringing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West and into mainstream culture since 1974 when she first began teaching. She's also the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society and the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller Real Happiness, her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and Real Love, her latest release by Flatiron Books, of which I'm a huge fan. I've actually been reading it for the past week or so. Acclaimed for her humorous, down-to-earth teaching style, Sharon offers a secular, modern approach to Buddhist teachings, making them instantly accessible. She's also a regular columnist for On Being, a contributor to the Huffington Post, and host of her own podcast, which I'm a huge fan of, called The Meta Hour. So what went down on this episode? I'm in New York City recording a bunch of podcasts. I hit up my friend Noah because he mentioned that he knows Sharon. I'm like, dude, hook me up with Sharon. I got to try and record her while I'm in the city. Noah kindly introduces me via email. I'm like, yo, Sharon, I know you don't know who I am, but I'm a huge fan. I'd love to record with you. She's like, yeah, dude, no problem. Come on over to my apartment. It was literally recorded on my way to JFK before I split town. It was like the last minute I could possibly get in. And Sharon was so gracious and kind to let me go over to her apartment where we sat down for the following recording. Now, this recording session was really funny, too, because we started out with like one of my dreams, which was a meditation. So I'm like, you know, Sharon, could you lead us in a guided meditation as we start the interview? She's like, yeah, of course, that's what I do. So someone that I've been listening to on tapes for years and years is sitting there like guiding me through this meditation. And then during the recording, I had my, my, all my gear set up. I'm doing a Facebook Live, an Instagram Live. I had a video camera up. I mean, I popped up all this gear. My assistant, Valerie, helped me set it up. Thank God. And then my recorder kept dying in the middle of the interview. And I was like, it was a great spiritual lesson. I was going to say I was mortified, but not really because it's, who cares? I mean, it's not a big deal. But it was just really annoying because I kept putting in new batteries, but it was plugged in. You know, this is the stuff you go through as a podcast. I had just recorded actually 14 episodes. They all went off without a hitch. And then like the final one, the finale was someone that I was really excited about. And the damn uh, extension cord, when I got home to LA, I figured out the extension cord had like short circuited or something. And that's why it kept dying. So hopefully my editor can pull this thing together because there was literally three points where I had to stop and be like, um, excuse me, Miss Salzburg. 
but I need to fix my gear. Anyway, of course, because she's been meditating since like forever, she was just sitting there laughing, rolling with the punches, not phased at all, which is a testament to her work. So it was a fun day to say the least and one that I will never forget and hopefully you won't either. Here's what we cover in this episode. We talk about the fact that she's been meditating for exactly as long as I've been alive. What it was like for her to travel to India for her first 10-day Vipassana meditation and why she went the route of the Buddhist tradition while so many of her contemporaries leaned toward Hindu-based teachings. Why she never chose to take on a spiritual name or wear guru costumes and how she managed, that's what I call them, and how she managed to avoid the trappings of the spiritual ego. The value in taking a householder's approach to spirituality. Then Sharon treats us to a short, what I call, idiot's guide to Buddhism, where she breaks down the origins of the tradition and some of its teachers. It was really interesting to me because Buddhism is not something I know a lot about. I follow a few of the teachers but I still don't totally get it, which you'll definitely uh, you'll definitely pick that up in the course of this interview because I'm like a curious kid just asking her how all of this stuff works. Then we talk about why she still chooses to live in an insane city like New York City and what value a city like that holds for spiritual growth. Her views on social media and device addiction. Oh, you know, I just busted you because if you're listening to this podcast, especially on a device, it means you might be addicted to it. We're going to find out if you are and what to do about it. The fine line between making a positive contribution to the world and being a fanatical activist. How she discovered the path to freedom from the mind and why she's devoted her life to teaching it. The fact that in life pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We explore the idea that mindfulness is not passive, but rather surrendered action. How to become free of negative attachments. What is the hungry ghost and how we can avoid being trapped by our desires? How reincarnation affects our lives? Sharon's views on the value of the 12 steps. Then we talk about Real Love, her 10th book, and what role compassion toward ourselves and others plays in our lives. Lastly, Sharon gives us her prediction on where the current spiritual movement is taking us and how she's hopeful for the future state of mankind's evolution. I'm really pleased to bring you this episode, but before I do, I'd like to invite you to join us for a special bonus bootleg broadcast, episode number 100, featuring your host, yours truly, Luke Story, live on the Sunset Strip for an intimate exploration into the nature of mind, spirit, and consciousness. That's a bonus episode this Friday in celebration of our 100th show. But until then, I'd like to invite you to dive into the void with our very special guest, Sharon Salzberg. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Sharon. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. That's so fun. I was telling Valerie on the way over here, I was like, I worked with celebrities for 17 years in Hollywood. (laughs) I was rare. I got really jaded at the end. I mean, I was rarely starstruck, but I was like, I think I'm nervous. We're going to Sharon Salzberg's apartment right now. What the hell? I had to like do some breathing exercises and stuff. I was really uh, beside myself for a moment there. This is my apartment. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we have a nice vibe going on here too. And I like to see that you're human. You also have a television. I have a television. <laughs> There's not only an altar, but we have like an altar and a TV. So that's right. We're gonna we're gonna get real. I thought it could be fun. To start out, perhaps, with a little 
brief guided meditation sure. for our listeners. Sure. How would you feel about that? I think that's very cool. Awesome. Okay, so uh, if you want to just sit comfortably, close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. Sometimes we start actually by listening to sound. Maybe it's the sound of my voice or maybe wherever you are, there's traffic or some other sound. And it's a way of just relaxing deep inside and allowing your experience to come and go. It's like the sound just washes through you. And then bring your attention into your body and to the breath, the place where you feel the breath most clearly. Maybe that's the nostrils or the chest or the abdomen. Bring your attention to that place and just rest. See if you can feel one breath. And if you find your attention's wandered, you get lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. We say the most important moment in the whole process is the next moment after you've been gone. It's the moment where you realize you've been disconnected. You practice letting go. And you practice beginning again. Just bring your attention back to the feeling of the breath. You have to do that like a billion times, let go and begin again. That's not a problem. That is the training. That's the process. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. <laughs> when it comes to meditation, I'm never ready. <laughs> well, you know, I, I always say that. And I think <laughs> I didn't feel quite ready either. And then I thought, how long can I go? You know, it's like it's supposed to be audio, right? It's like <laughs> I know how it's, big a silence it's can funny. I get well, away I, with? As I was watching my thoughts in the middle of the silence, I was thinking, I wonder if the sound editor is going to see a big gap in the waveform and shorten it. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? it's funny, but yeah, in the Vedic meditation that I practice, it's twenty. You know, the tradition is twenty minutes sure, twice a day, sure, and I'm always sure. asking my teachers that sometimes I feel like going forty or an hour. He's like, "No, nah, you got to, you know, you have to get another training for that." You know, and I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm ready." You yeah, know, yeah. obviously I'm ready yeah. because. I want to keep going. Yeah. But I also like to escape. You know, I'm a big escapist. <laughs> so as we were discussing, you've been meditating now for 46 years, which is exactly how long I've been alive, which is Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is astonishing. That's astonishing. a really long time. Yeah. So what a gift to be able to <laughs> sit down and have a moment of meditation with you, someone who's been doing it forever. And 
in terms of the meditation, what do you think? Have you had a, a sessions doing, you know, the 10-day Vipassana trainings or anything like that where you've gone for hours and hours? What do you think is the oh, yeah. longest in one sit you've ever done? The longest in one sit? Um, oh, maybe a couple of hours, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was how I began. When I began meditating a billion years ago. Yeah. Uh, I had to go to India pretty well. I mean, I didn't see anywhere in the States where I could actually... There wasn't a meditation center in every corner of Manhattan? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. And especially I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. There wasn't one there either. Right. And uh, I went to India sort of like my junior year abroad. I'd written a, a paper for the Independent Study Program saying I wanted to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So, so I went with my student loans and my scholarships and so on. And... Um, in those days, the form, you know, was really intensive 10-day retreats. That's that's often how you learned. And the teacher was S.N. Goenka, and uh, the style was Vipassana, or insight meditation. And um, it was only much later that people began learning when classes or workshops or on tape or, or something like that. But that was pretty much the form. So when I walked into that monastery... In Bodhgaya, India, I'd never meditated for a single second before, and there it was in a 10-day course. Wow, that's a pretty hardcore introduction. Yeah. And why do you think you gravitated toward the Buddhist tradition rather than a lot of the people of your generation, Ram Dass and all these yeah, other guys yeah. who went with more of the traditional, you know, the, the Gita, yeah. Hindu yeah. kind yeah. of scene? Well, Ram Dass and, and some large number of people were all at my first retreats, my Buddhist retreats. And I actually said goodbye to the bus that was taking them away from Bodh Gaya in search of Ramdas's guru named Kroli Baba. And right. So uh, Krishnadas and I, who we often teach together, he was at that retreat as well. Of course, when I first met them, it was all like Krishnadas was Jeffrey and yeah, you know, yeah. They had other names. Everyone was like Bill Ramdas. and Joe. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You know, so Linda. And through that, you kept your own name, which is interesting. I did. I mean, I have some other names, but I just yeah. never. You never chose to adopt full time a spiritual name. No. Why do you think well, that is? I don't know. I just. You weren't drawn to? I wasn't drawn to it. And they were, you know, they're fine enough names, but they're not, you know. Yeah, I've always sort of had the feeling that, I mean, I guess if you have reverence for your guru or your teacher and they say, mm -hmm. hey, this is your spiritual name, it's sort of like, okay, I'm not going to fight with that. But at the same time, it's like, I don't look at myself as my name to begin with. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. taking on, because I have a spiritual name through the Kundalini Yoga mm -hmm, tradition. And mm -hmm. honestly, I don't even, half the time I don't remember what it is. If you quiz me right now, I'd have to look up an Evernote or something. <laughs> but it's like, I thought, well, I'm not even Luke's story. Yeah, so yeah, why yeah. even identify as a secondary name that is also not me? So anyway. And one thing I've noticed about you too, over the years, is that you've also not adopted all of the other sort of theatrics in terms of, you know, the wardrobe and mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. silk pillows and flowers and the whole kind of spiritual show. Do you think that was another thing that you just never gravitated toward? Or did you make a conscious decision to kind of just be a real normal person named Sharon? I think I am just a real normal person named Sharon. So it was kind of inevitable in a way. And right. there's a certain extent in which, I don't know, maybe it was a conscious decision, but it wasn't highly you know labored <laughs> right, like, right. what should i do should, <laughs> like, I? should i put on the orange robe or not oh my god let right. me meditate on this well all those things also have meaning you know the the robes mean certain vows right, right. and right i mean one could wear it casually but that would be kind of odd too like i look like a nun but i'm not really you know right <laughs> like, right right, right, I'm right. following any of the rules right you know? yeah i think there's there's sort of two sides of that from my uh, my perspective is that 
there are some people who are highly devotional, right? And and some of that way that they're representing themselves to the world sort of sends a message to people on the street like, hey, I'm on a different trip right now, so leave me alone. You know, like when you see like a Catholic nun, you're sort of, even if you're not Catholic, I, I tend to have a certain reverence for them. Like, oh, wow, okay. They're a devotional person and you give a certain respect to them mm-hmm. and maybe even some leniency in terms of their behavior. Like if I go to yoga and someone's wearing a turban and all white, I'm kind of like, okay, they're allowed to be a little weirder than your average person, you know? So there's that side of it, but is there not, from your perspective, also the side where the ego can sort of co-opt a spiritual person or spiritual teacher and kind of create yet another false identity out of that? Oh, certainly that can happen. And I think, you know, it's one thing to live in, in India which is, in a way, what I always thought I would do is live in India forever, which didn't happen. And so it's one thing to live there where you can be a guy wearing an orange skirt or, you know, never never put on (laughs) shoes or whatever, you know, it's okay. And being here where you're really making a statement of difference and often dependence, you know, like I'm not carrying money, therefore you have to take care of me. Or, you know, and... And so that's like a negotiation with a culture. Like, how do you want to represent to people? And do you want people here to feel that difference? You know, might it not be better for somebody who's a nursery school teacher or a special ed teacher or a nurse or something to look at you and think, oh, maybe I can meditate too. Right, you right. You know, in my actually kind of stressful job, you know. Right, to sort of represent the householder yeah. approach. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Yeah. I just, I think at different places in my journey, not that I ever adopted so much the outward look, but there have definitely been times where I've I've attained some level of understanding and Mm -hmm, development. mm -hmm. And then unbeknownst to me, the egos come in and went, oh, now you're spiritual and you're going to go show everyone <laughs> how spiritual you are, which is like so detestable in a sense. It's almost like if you're, if I'm just going to be unconscious and just be like an egoically based person, I'd almost like just grab the Lamborghini and the Rolex and just go that way. But it's, it's creeped me out just subjectively when at various times in my development, I've looked and thank God was able to have that witness perspective and go, oh my God, I'm kind of being gross right now. Yeah. I'm like plain spiritual. So it's, yeah. uh, it's interesting. Well, that's one possibility, but then maybe there are other possibilities, uh, which are also just different interpretations of the same act. Like uh, I and, and many people I know say coming back from India um, when you were a baby, you know, uh, it was kind of scary being back here. And the really special and important things we'd learned about love and about the mind and about the heart and uh, life and so on seemed fragile, that learning. And and you wanted to like kind of wear all white or drink chai, which no one was drinking, you know, <laughs> right, no right. one, you right. know, or in those days we were Birkenstocks, you know, which were brand new or, you know, there was something you wanted to help remind you that, oh yeah, you know, I'm not the person who left here some years ago, or I'm not the person who got so confused about what life was about. That's and, interesting. So sort know, of clues or reminders. Yeah, to and keep, it, was, it was fear, yeah. you know, it was like protection. I need, I need to protect this. And then, of course, insight grows and it protects us. We don't have to protect it, you know. Right, right. You don't have to be like, no, Grandma, I can't watch TV. I'm too pure, you know. Like, (laughs) you don't have to be off-putting that way. Well, I think that's one thing that attracts me to you and your work is that you're very relatable, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I think for someone who's approaching spirituality from a more skeptical point of view, the more dogmatic 
the teacher or teaching is, the more off-putting it is. And one of my goals with this show is to be present to present people like you mm-hmm. to the audience, to the world that are accessible and relatable to where I think it has the most impact mm-hmm. that way where it's like, oh, I can be a normal person and, and still live a spiritual life. It doesn't have to be, you know, a celibate monastic life in a cave somewhere and I can still, you know, attain some degree of enlightenment in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. So can you give us the idiot's guide to Buddhism? I know this is probably a longer talk than perhaps we have time for, but it's interesting to me that the Buddha was from India, yet you learned primarily a lot of your studies in Burma, if I'm Mm -hmm, not mistaken, mm -hmm. and then it seems to be very centered in Tibet. Mm -hmm. And I've been to India. I didn't see any traces of Buddhism in all Mm -hmm. of southern India, and I was there for a month. You know, it was like definitely the Hindu situation, a few Sikhs poking around here and there. So what's the short version of the history of Buddhism and, and how it sort of came to spread out mm-hmm. of India into these other areas? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I spent years in India, actually, but studying with Burmese or Tibetan teachers. Interesting. You know, so they weren't, they weren't really actually ethnically Indian teachers at that time. Now, well, the Goenka, I think, ethnically was Indian, but he'd grown up in Burma or his you know, life was really in Burma. He needed a visa to get back into India. Uh, when he came back and began teaching. So the Buddha, they say, was born in this in this town, Lumbini, which is now it's Nepal. It's just the southern part of Nepal. So India, Nepal, like that. And uh, after his time, the teaching spread to Sri Lanka and then up around, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Thailand, Vietnam Burma, those countries, Cambodia, and then up north, you know, Korea, China, Japan. I see. And Tibet, you know, is its own trajectory there. So the heart of it is really Bodh Gaya, which is the town the Buddha was enlightened in, which is in Bihar. It's about six hours from Benares. And that's where I actually began practice. Is, oh, is cool. You went right yeah. to the sea. I went right there. That's yeah, cool. yeah. That's cool. And, uh, the, Did you know that at the time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the goal. Okay, okay. Yeah, the descendant of the tree it said the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened is there. So I see. It's an amazing place. It's kind of like Mecca for Buddhists. Right, you know, right. Like, and why are so many of the teachers um, have the word Rinpoche in their name? Uh, it's in Tibetan, in the Tibetan system, it's a title. I see. It means so it's like, like sir or yeah. lord or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. It's okay, like okay. a precious one. Or, <laughs> right. Because you know, I first yeah. heard like Trumpa Rinpoche, I, know, I think, Rinpoche. was like the first guy. And then I was like, wait, does he have a lot of cousins that were yeah. also like yeah. Buddhist teachers? Okay, cool. Just yeah. No, it can be really confusing, especially if you're looking for a book. Right. It's like by Rinpoche. Well, which Rinpoche? Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You start Googling the word Rinpoche, a lot comes up. So that's funny. Okay, cool. And so here you are in New York City after all these years. Do you still live here because you love the grind of New York City? Or are you here as a service to your fellow man <laughs> to be someone that's accessible and is offering teachings and helping people learn to meditate and be more mindful here. I mean, mm-hmm. is it like, is it a labor of love or do you actually walk out onto fifth Avenue here and be like, I like it here still. I, I do like it here. That's why I'm here. I actually officially live in Massachusetts in Barry, Massachusetts where I have a retreat center that I helped co-found the insight meditation society. I have a house there. Um, I vote there, you know, like, right. I used to say my books were there, but my books are everywhere now, you know, and especially on my Kindle. Um, And uh, some years ago, I was working on this book called Faith, and I I just had this feeling I wanted to get out of Barry, you know, that I wanted to go somewhere else. And I happened to have a friend who was going to Barry to sit a three-month retreat, and she said, well, take my apartment in New York. 
Um, so I did. And that was a few blocks from here, actually. And I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Washington Heights near the George Washington Bridge. And uh, I had come back now and then. It was always, like, really noisy and, yeah. you know, jangly. But this time, actually living here for that three-month period, I just loved it. You know, I was really happy. And I felt really creatively stimulated. I was hanging out with writers and artists and, um, you know, and I was teaching. And, and it was... It was a really beautiful experience. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll come back. And so it started a period where I was coming in for two or three months at a time and subletting an apartment, and then I'd leave and come back six months later. And and then at one point I thought, what would it be like just to have a place? I wouldn't be there all the time by any means, and but it would be the, it would be there, you know? And, uh, and so that's been the last several years that I've done that. And in all of these years in New York City in terms of for lack of a better term, what we might call the consciousness scene, you know, the, the yogis, the meditation centers, all of this sort of community here, this subculture. How have you seen that change? Because as a pretty recent visitor in the past nine, 10 years been coming here, it seems like, and I don't know if I was just not tapped into the wavelength, but it seems like there's an explosion of commerce and people in this community now. Do you think it's at its height or is it just sort of a cycle that we're coming back around to and was it the same way in 73 and now it's just kind of a trend's come back or do you see momentum? Oh, no, it's vastly different than 73. I actually came back in 74. Um, it's vastly, vastly different than it was then. And I don't know where it'll go because, you know, and it's like it's always changing. It's like there were all those yoga centers to begin with and maybe three vegetarian restaurants, you know, and people, I'd be wearing like an Indian shirt and people would say to me, where did you get that? And I'd say, India. <laughs> you know, that's where it came from. And, right. And, and, you know, so there's been an explosion of interest in Indian culture and music and clothing and food. And, you know, that's changed too. But, um, and then there were yoga centers everywhere. And then yoga centers were including meditation. And then uh, meditation centers started springing up. And now, you know, you and I met at Mindful, <laughs> just mindful without any vowels. <laughs> so I'm always saying it in a funny way. Mindful. Uh, mindful, <laughs> which are like mindfulness studios, right. you know, with uh, ongoing programs, you know, 35-minute classes, 45-minute classes, whatever it is, um, meditating, various forms of meditation, and that's what it does. And You know, they're what's starting to spring up everywhere. What's been the most dry period here in terms of, when was like the lowest consciousness of this city, would you say, from that perspective? Um, I, well, that's hard to say because there's always been a counterculture. Right, right. You know, so I think it's always been alive and thriving to some extent, underground in a way. But the kind of commercialization or popularization is something very new. And the kind of widespread interest is something very new. So you think you could say we're sort of at the pinnacle now based on what you've observed? I don't know if it's the pinnacle. It might, <laughs> well, might be the beginning. Yeah, yeah, maybe it is, right? It could be the beginning. Right, know? right. One can hope that it keeps going from yeah, here, right? Yeah. I know I, I've really enjoyed like my recent trips here just because I was telling you before we recorded, I just, I'm meeting the most fascinating yeah, yeah. people and a lot of them are really young. You know, I'm 46 and yeah. it's like, I'm meeting kids that are like 19, 20 and they're, yeah telling me i mean that we're talking about spiritual concepts that are like way beyond what i hear 19 year olds or 20 year olds talking about a few years ago you know you'd have to talk to someone who had quite a lot of life experience yeah, under their belt yeah. and, and have been seeking for a long time and so there are times where i'm 
cautiously borderline dismissive when I meet someone really young who's into spirituality and is going to like tell me how to be in the now or something. But I'm, you know, hopefully open minded enough to listen. I go, God damn, they're pretty on point. It's yeah, really yeah, encouraging. Yeah, yeah. It's very cool to meet people that are young and are, are actually really doing the work, you know? So another thing I noticed about you is, you know, you're here in the city, you, you talk all over town. You, you're If you look on Sharon's website, you guys, I mean, she's like literally everywhere every day, which I was amazed I could get you here today. But for someone who's as widely known as you are within this community, you seem very approachable and accessible. Do you have to sort of protect yourself? Like in certain cases, are there spiritual groupies that start bugging <laughs> you and hanging around? You know what I mean? Like, do you have to have any sort of buffer with the world so that people don't constantly invade your space and sort of siphon energy from you, so to speak? I guess I guess I just do naturally because I feel like I have a life, you know, like... Uh, you're not going to publish my apartment building, right? No, you know, of course and, not. And of nobody course. really knows what it is. Of and, course not. Uh, no, most people don't have my cell phone number. Um, I do. I'm very readily accessible by email, and and but I always counsel patients, you know, because it takes me sometimes a really long time to yeah. get back to somebody, and um, I don't really say to people, "Yeah, I'll see you individually," because I just can't to yeah. many people and. But it's beautiful. I mean, how wonderful that people will want to spend time with me or anybody, you know, with that kind of honesty and openness. And Another thing I've yeah. noticed about you is you're in your 60s, but you're very, like, hip and active on social media. To a lot of people Thank in their you. 60s. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, wow, you're, like, doing Instagram stories and all sorts of stuff. I can't even get my tribe that are in their 30s sometimes to figure that stuff out you know i'm like come on you guys get up to speed like we're you're multimedia here but do you enjoy the aspect of that far reach that you have with our modern social media i do you know the main thing that i'm on almost all the time is twitter oh that's uh, you your know, main that's, that's your main, main thing you know okay. and, and the rest i play in you know right but it was something about the brevity, you know, just like, it's like a haiku. Here's, it is, yeah. Here's the thing. And, and it's like the Tao of social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. I just really liked it. Although I just had a really weird experience in that um, I was in Washington, D.C. the other day, and I taped a podcast with Congressman Tim Ryan, who's a congressman from Ohio, who's a meditator who read a book called The Mindful Nation. And I spent a bunch of time in his office waiting for him because he was in Congress actually voting. And uh, he came back, and you know, we had this nice podcast, which will go up at some point. And then he and I gave a talk together that night, and there was a journalist from the Washington Post there, so she put on Twitter uh, something about that talk, and and the headline was sort of a quote from Tim, in which he said, um, speaking of our times, don't add hatred to hatred. You know, he said, I don't see the point of adding hatred to hatred, right? So that was kind of the the message so um she put that up on twitter and then in my mentions because my name was there along with tim's i started seeing all these comments people were writing to him which were full of hatred <laughs> and really vile you know and then how really, sadly ironic it was very ironic and very intense i was like oh my god you know and and then dan harris is also a friend of ours who's um an ABC News anchor. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, he retweeted it. So then I started seeing all these comments to Dan. Like, you scumbag, you call yourself a journalist. I go, oh, my God, you know? like. Right. And I thought, oh, this is the other side of, of social media, which I don't usually get, 
you know, like yeah, um, and it's very intense as people feel free to say anything. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing with with you know, and luckily, I think you're in a space that's not inflammatory. You know what I yeah, mean? Because yeah. you're not like so politically active. Like maybe someone like Marianne Williamson yeah, is yeah, yeah. a spiritual teacher, but has no problem like yeah, delving yeah. into the political arena. So I'm sure she gets her fair share of trolling. But what I find interesting about that form of negativity is that I think a lot of people that perpetuate that behavior are really sort of have this cowardice and you know that they would never say the things that they say if it was in person you know it's sort of like the little it's like this kid that was picked on in school that has this pain body you know and is now projecting that pain onto whoever they see mm -hmm, fit mm -hmm. but they really probably wouldn't have the balls to do that in person you know it's like if you could see the little creep in their apartment like behind those vile <laughs> attacks right it's like i mean i remember those are the kids in school that like you know talk shit to the bully and then run and hide behind the teacher right, you know that kind right, of thing it's just right. it's an interesting thing but i i interviewed a guy named david wolf who's a big health guru and mm -hmm. he he talks about flat earth and aliens. I mean, he's really out there and draws a lot of criticism from, you know, both, I would say, kind of the left and right mm -hmm. spectrum. And I mean, it just, he just gets trolled so hard because he has no filter. And I asked him, I said, dude, how does, how does that not break your heart? How do you deal with that being a public person and getting so much negativity toward you? And his, his answer was very earnest and very wise. He just said, Luke, you know what, man? When I see that stuff, I, I feel so much compassion for the people doing it because you can just imagine like how miserable their life has to be mm -hmm. to where like that's what energizes them and they're spending their time and they're, they're actually giving thought and feeling to something that negative. Yeah. He's like, can you imagine what that must feel like? And it was, it was such a beautiful way to do that. It, it wasn't yeah. even like... Yeah oh, I just blessed them. It was really like a heartfelt understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. of what it must feel like to be yeah. in that yeah. position. So, yeah. But lucky for you, yeah. you're just all good <laughs> vibes. You don't have to deal with any haters. So far, I've been very fortunate in that respect too. Uh -huh, I'm, I'm uh -huh. sure, I wouldn't doubt that it's coming because I have a lot of funny things that I talk about. In terms of that, being proactive and activism and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. wanting to have a positive influence on the world and someone putting themselves out there, I see what I determine to be sort of a lot of like do-gooderism and people naively, if not at times arrogantly, deciding that the world needs to be changed and that it shouldn't be the way it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to set out and change the world. Where does wanting to contribute positive mm -hmm. energy mm -hmm. and positive change in the world start and sort of being naive and arrogant about deciding what needs to change? In other words, how can someone... It's hard to articulate. So the Gandhi thing, like be the change you want to see in the world. I interpret that as like, just work on your own shit, get more conscious, wake up more, be more spiritual. And that just has a ripple effect on mankind because mm -hmm. you're really polite to the cab driver and you just start being this, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. this wave of love. But then there's other people that that's not enough mm -hmm. and they want to go out and protest and like shake things up a bit. Where, where do you think the balance is there? Well, I don't know that the other side or the other option is pr only protesting. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm polarizing it to the two you know, extremes. I mean, I think, I think there are other actions. I think, you know, whether one only has to change oneself or one has to participate in some other action. That might be protesting. It might be art. It could be something that really expands consciousness. It could be 
um, seeking systems change. Uh, For me, what is really a passion of mine is having people vote, you know, because I think it's when we change ourselves, and I talked to Tim about this actually, it came up the other night. When we change ourselves, I think the thing that manifests really strongly is good-heartedness. You know, you see a person on the street asking for money and you don't consider them subhuman, you know. There is a real sense of compassion and and care. Whether or not you give them money, you know, might depend on other things, you know, like, you know, if you're committed to sobriety and you don't think they're sober or sometimes people take resolves, I don't care what they're going to do with the money, I'm going to give it to them. (laughs) You know, know, whether you give them the money or not, there is a kind of... um, recognition of their worth as a human being, even though they're in that situation. Whether you then start thinking, I wonder what the housing policy is of this city, and if there's kind of inequity there, and if that policy could change, maybe fewer people would be homeless. That, I don't think, comes from just that kind of inner work. That comes from a certain education and an inclination to think about systems. And Right, and I think that isn't a bad thing. That doesn't this doesn't have to be self righteous or weird or right. imposing on other people. I think it, it's paying attention in a different way, which we're not used to. I'm not used to, you know. And I think it's not a bad time, given where the earth is, you know, like right to start adding that to right. a spiritual agenda. Yeah, and you know we've got to do the inner work, otherwise we're coming from a weird place and. And it's not well motivated. and Right, you know. maybe it, it might be motivated from a sense of control or, yeah, or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. I guess that's the, that's the, that's the root of the, the question is sort of like surrendered action. Yeah. You know, where it's like you give the performance, you apply positive energy into the world, but maybe perhaps not as attached to your idea of what you think it should turn out as. Well, that, I think it's always good not to be that attached, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I... I mean, I don't believe in moral relativism. I don't believe it's all just a question of getting together and having a nice conversation right. for change, you know? Right. Uh, I think that some actions are are wrong. I mean, some of my actions are wrong. It's not yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm yeah, perfect. Yeah. But, um, I mean, we can sit down and have a nice chat forever, and you're not going to convince me that, you know, killing girl babies is correct action. It's not. Right. You know? And... Uh, it's not a question of respecting someone else's culture either, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, we need to be able to care about everybody and have compassion for everybody and try to make the world safer for other people. Right. As well as ourselves, you right. know, and try to create a better situation in this world. And and that's why I'm, I'm really into voting, you know. Not a, that's not a very popular position in all spiritual circles you yeah know, i've had a lot of people say to me you know like well yeah that's the thing i mean like i said with the exception of marianne williamson i can't think of too many other people that are prominent spiritual teachers that even have any outwardly facing position on anything you know because it's it's not their path it's like they're yeah, yeah. you know they're working on the inner the yeah, inner game yeah. yeah and i never tell people who to vote for i mean I don't right, think that's right. correct you know right but i right. think the idea of participating in that system because other people are counting on it. Sure, sure. You know, like people who, for whom a tiny difference makes a big difference. If you're walking down the street and uh, you know a homeless street person approaches you and it's very clear that they're intoxicated and that 
you have a pretty good inclination that they're going to go cop with that money. Would you give them money or not? Or does it matter to you what they're going to do with it? Uh, mostly it doesn't matter um, to me. But sometimes, you know, it might for some reason. I mean, I've been with, the reason I use it as an example is because I was with a friend once who was very committed to her sobriety, which was new for her. And we'd gone to dinner and then we were walking home and somebody asked for money. Someone stopped us on the street and asked for money. And she said, to him, I'm not going to give you any money, but let's go into a deli and I will buy you anything that you want. And he was really like touched because it's like one of the things about that life that's also true is you don't have choices. You don't wake up thinking, I think I'll have pizza today, you know? Um, it's not like that. And he kept saying, we're in the deli, and he kept saying, anything? Anything? <laughs> said, yeah, anything. It's like even the know? biggest foot long sandwich? Yeah, even that? <laughs> that on that sandwich? You know, and that was her decision based on all the circumstances right. of her life. It's a, it's a curiosity to me because I, too, have been sober for a long uh -huh, time, 20 uh -huh, years now, uh -huh. and I'm very grateful for it, very committed yeah, to it, yeah. uh, not by virtue, but by necessity. Yeah. And I sort of struggle with that in the beginning, too. I live in Hollywood. I mean, it's warm there. You got homeless guys everywhere. Most of them seem to be like they have some substance abuse mm -hmm. problems. And at first, I was like, I'm not getting money. He's just going to buy a beer. And then I thought, Luke... You selfish dick. You know, it's like when I needed that medicine, I needed yeah. that medicine. Yeah. So it's almost yeah. like the best thing you could do for an alcoholic is let them buy their yeah. beer because that's yeah. their that's how they're getting by, man. Yeah. And yeah. additionally, yeah. you might just be helping them hit a bottom faster. Yeah. I think yeah. if someone had given me some lottery winnings when I was 22, I might have gotten sober at 23 because things got so dark so fast. You know, I made it mm -hmm. to 26 because I didn't have the money to really, you know, take it to the nth mm -hmm. degree. So that's an interesting, interesting concept to yeah. explore. I mean, to me, it's sort of like, it's none of my business. It's yeah. like, I, yeah, yeah. but there's also times where I'm not intuitively guided to have an exchange with someone. Yeah, In fact, right. last night, yeah. someone's like, hey, hey, you, hey, you, you. I'm just like, mm, block, force yeah. field, not yeah. interested. We're not yeah. having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. The energy was way too dark to even be like, oh, hey, yeah. I'm going to be compassionate. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. And speaking of compassion, how have you been able to achieve forgiveness for people in your life that have really, really wronged you? You know, mm -hmm. just someone has textbook effed you over. You'd win in a court of law, but yet, you've been able to become free of that yeah. condemnation of them. Yeah. I think this this is a 12-step saying. I'm not really sure, but I think so. Uh, somebody once said to me, he was talking about his relationship to someone else who'd wronged him, and he was obsessed with it, you know, and like oh, yeah. obsessed. Resentment. Yeah. To and re the, the definition, as I understand, is to re-feel. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he was really caught, and he said... Um, I've let that guy live rent-free in my brain for too long. That's what I think might be a 12 Yeah, yeah, thing, I've heard know? that said. You know, and that really struck me. Like, that's the consequence of the resentment and the obsession. You know, it's not that the other person's suffering more. You're suffering more. Yeah. So it's really been out of compassion for myself that I've worked with. You know, like, just let it go. Let, kind of like, let the universe take care of them. I don't have to be an agent of revenge. I'm not going to go out and try to harm them anyway. I'm just going to think about it all the time, you know? Right, like, right. Wouldn't it be more pleasant to think about something right. else? Like drinking the poison, hoping they'll die. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of like the Dalai Lama, who's really, you know, kind of plain spoken and homey about a lot of things. And, and he said, basically, you know, if you have an enemy uh, and you just, like, get obsessed with it, you know, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you can't enjoy anything. He said, why, not, why give them that satisfaction? You know, they have not taken over your life. 
and and you don't want that. So I kind of work on it from that point of view. Have you experienced in recent years any really bad betrayal? I think not in, in really recent years. But, I mean, we can interpret anything as a betrayal, right? We can. I mean, I haven't necessarily had that interpretation for some time, but, you know, you see it all the time. Somebody dies and someone else takes it as a betrayal. <laughs> you know, wait a minute, you're gone. Right, you right. You know, or life doesn't work out and we take it as a betrayal right every every april 15th i get betrayed (laughs) 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 i guess it does depend on how you contextualize it and is it not from your perspective or the the general buddhist perspective that pain is inevitable but suffering is optional yeah i mean that's one way of saying based on the way that i mean this has been my experience based on the way that i frame a situation oh i missed the plane oh see this always happens these assholes oh the cab this and that it's like it's like I was telling you with my hotel room. I, yeah. the, I the AC broke. I was just about to record a podcast, and for a moment, my mind was like, "Oh, here we go. See, I'm trying to do good work and help people in the world, and blah blah." blah. And it's just yeah. thank God for meditation. I was able to really quickly see. Oh yeah, my mind is having a little temper tantrum. Uh-huh. And then they ended up upgrading me to a fantastic room that I would, and I, you know, at this present time in my life, not be able to afford by any stretch. And then I got in the new room. Was like. Oh man, thank God the AC broke. Yeah. That was a really simplistic version of that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Of, it's just really, really about perception. So, how can one change the habitual negativity, you know, mm-hmm, that negativity mm-hmm. bias yeah. to where as you're living your life in real time, you can reframe situations in which you might feel betrayed or wronged or like, mm-hmm. you know, you have bad luck or something? Yeah, well, everything, you know, from the, certainly from the Buddhist point of view, depends on awareness, right? You have to feel the pain you're inflicting on yourself and know that um, you could say that there's pain anyway. Pain is inevitable. And we get disappointed. We don't get what we want, you know. Uh, you get moved to that fantastic suite and something else breaks down, you know, or whatever. You know, life has its disappointments and they hurt. You know, I think it's kind of unfair to ourselves to expect like oh that feels the same as success it doesn't feel the same as success you know it's painful but then we have the question of extra pain you know where we think you know this is the only thing i'll ever feel or this is my fault i shouldn't feel this um you know i've spent all that money in therapy why do i feel this or you know i've lost control this is so terrible or you know we just add we pile on we pile on we pile on that we don't need you know, we didn't need all that extra suffering, but you can watch and see, look what's starting, you know? And because what we are practicing, just like we practiced for those few minutes, is letting go without judgment and beginning again. We do it right there in that life situation. We've, we've done it a billion times in our meditation, you know, and it carries over. Would you say that in terms of the ability to do that, that, if one's overall life is coming from a position of surrender, that it's easier to ac- have acceptance for those little micro inconveniences. What do you mean by surrender? Surrender, I mean that, like in my particular case, I've accepted that I really don't know what serves the highest good for myself, and I'm constantly working to be- bring myself back into alignment with the creator that made the world and made me and that I, I accept knows better <laughs> about what's best for me than mm-hmm. I do, you know? And so I'm really 
it's not, it's hard to say it in a way that doesn't sound religious, but for lack of a better way to term it, would just be like to seek the will of God, you know, which is like really the the basis of sobriety, the basis of the twelve steps is you're you've accepted that your limited resources <laughs> as a single human being, you know, aren't going to get you where you want to go and be able to produce a fulfilling, meaningful life, you know, mm-hmm. and so surrendering to me is is the uh, the acceptance that there is some other source of power and intelligence. And if I can align myself to it, I'm going to have a better time. So that's my kind mm-hmm. of own definition is to stop fighting. It's to stop fighting reality. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. reality is reality and it's going to be heaven or hell based on the degree to which I can accept each of those little moments. But it seems to me that's be- in my experience has become much easier because the context of my life is coming from just a generally more surrendered place. Like, I'm done trying to be the boss mm-hmm. of my mm-hmm. own life. <laughs> you know? Does that kind of fit within your framework or how would you? Well, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, just again, it's just, you know, Buddhist languaging, you know, you sure, wouldn't sure. talk about a higher power or another source. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm translating the yeah, whole yeah. while, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, my problem with the word surrender is not a personal problem. It's uh-huh. just using it, you know, and hearing people respond sometimes thinking that's so passive that means you never do anything about right. anything you know right uh, which it can't mean you know because then you're just victimized by everything right you know like it's one yeah, of someone com- steals your wallet walking down the street and you're like oh i just have to accept it that's right that's right, exactly <laughs> you know and, uh it's one of the problems with the word mindfulness the, as it's currently used i mean all the definitions of mindfulness are correct the popular ones they're not incorrect they are correct but we tend to misconstrue what they mean. Like mindfulness means accepting things the way that they are. Mindfulness means being with your experience without judging, you know, so which for some people sounds awfully passive. Um, like I was once teaching somewhere and I began the meditation just as we began when I said, let's sit and listen to sound. And somebody raised their hand right away and said, well, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear going off? Should I sit here mindfully knowing the smoke alarm is going off or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But it makes sense, that question, because the words surrender, accept, sure. without judgment, that's what they mean to us. So, sure. you know, in contrast, it's a very vibrant, dynamic state where we're not seeking control over what we could never control. We just want to connect very fully with what is. And there is responsiveness and action and movement that that's born of that perhaps a surrendered action where i'm exerting some degree of will and effort to change or remove myself from a situation without being imbued with negativity and fighting it along the way that's right so i can say like you know what i actually don't like having a flat tire on the side of the road i'm just gonna sit there and take a goddamn nap (laughs) you know i'm gonna get out and i'm gonna fix the tire but i'm going to be mindful not to get pissed off about the fact that i got a flat tire that's right exactly okay cool i love that Time for a quick yet crucial break. So I, your host, Luke Story, am a huge fan of podcasts. In fact, that's why I started my own, and that's why you're listening to it right now. But one thing that's always driven me crazy when I listen to shows is that there'll be so many resources and links and things mentioned by the host and or the guest on a show that I can never remember it all. I don't write it down. I have no way to like go Google something or look it up when I get home, but there's so much value there, right? So I realized that there's an issue with this. I've solved it for you. I put together a newsletter 
newsletter every single week that contains all of the links, everything you can click on from every single resource mentioned during my shows. So all you have to do to get this email to you is get on my mailing list. It's not a tacky, corny email list where I send you all kind of weird stuff. I just announce when I have a show and send you all the resources from each episode. It's pretty sweet, actually. Me and my crew take a lot of time, energy, and money to produce these newsletters, and they're full of value, and I want you to have it. So here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com. Right on the homepage, you're going to see a tab that says, Join the Evolution. Click on that, enter your name and email, and I'll send it to you every week. That's lukestory.com. Click on Join the Evolution. Sign up for the newsletter. And all of this info will be in your inbox. You don't have to worry about stopping to write anything down. And now, back to the interview. I do want to try and stick within the framework of the Buddhist vernacular because it's not something I'm that Mm -hmm. familiar with. It hasn't been my path, but it obviously correlates to everything Uh I've ever Uh heard. And there's a lot of um, use of the term, you know, non-attachment. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult term also these days, especially because of attachment theory in psychology where the very thing you want is attachment. You want secure attachment. Uh, Here, too, I I sometimes substitute the word control for the word attachment within the Buddhist context to sort of get a glimpse of what it means. It doesn't really mean the same thing as in psychology when they talk about secure attachment. It means something else, you know. Uh, And even attachment in the Buddhist context is not bad or wrong or terrible. It's a sure path to suffering. That's the point. So you don't have to think, I'm bad, I'm terrible, I'm awful, because I have all this attachment, but let's take a look, you know. Uh, Those times we try to control someone who cannot be controlled or something. I.e. everything and everyone. That's right. (laughs) Ultimately, right? We suffer. Yeah. And that suffering doesn't stand anyone in good stead. It's not like the source of effective action in the world or making a change. We simply suffer. You know, and it kind of brings us down. So uh, non-attachment really means, I consider non-attachment a state really of honor. It's like if you go to a meeting and someone has this huge agenda in the sense of things have got to work out this one way and they can't hear anything else, they can't consider options, they can't consider maybe a more creative solution, it's got to be this one thing, that's a big agenda, right? And they're attached. Whereas if we have more of an open mind and, you know, open view and let's see what makes sense or, you know, let me pay attention to what really feels like it has integrity or something like that, uh, that's a very different way of being. And that's what I would call non-attachment. It doesn't mean you don't care or that you're going to say, what the hell, let's do it any old way, you know, get it done. It's not like that at all, but you don't have that fixedness, you know, it's got to be this one way. So would you say if one's working on themselves and wanting to progress in life, that there is a way to have goals and set an intention and sort of, you know, do your due diligence, do the work along the way, but the non-attached point of view then would be to not be so invested in the results being a particular way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's more about the path maybe than the arrival point or the destination. Yeah, I think we do have goals. I think it's... Um uh, realistic to think we don't have a goal. Otherwise, why bother? You know, twenty right. minutes twice a day. Or right. I think it goes back. Yeah, I think like, it goes back to that the same thing. We're ca- the thread we're on, which is like that. Not if you're not attached and you're not trying to control. That doesn't. The converse of that isn't necessarily at the other end of the spectrum in apathy, where you're just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. I guess I'll just be spiritual and just sit on the cushion all day long. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's really. I mean, that's the purpose of I think 
at least for me, the spiritual pursuit and all the meditating and the chanting and the yoga and going to India is to achieve some degree of peace so that then I can go actually share yeah. who I really am in the absence of all of those weird quirks mm -hmm. and personality flaws and egoic positions with the world. That's right. It's like, wow. So it's almost like I don't have to add anything. I just have to remove some things. That's and right. when That's you remove right. those, then who you are shines forth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. This is good. What about cravings, addictions, desires, or mm -hmm. from what I've I've heard some teachers, I don't know if I've heard use this word, but the hungry ghost. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's like the best. That's a great name for a band, actually. <laughs> hungry ghost. It probably is a band. It probably is. We'll have to Google it. But what's your what's your take on that whole, you know, it's another side of the mind and the ego to constantly be like feeding that rapacious. Yeah lower nature that just constantly wants whether it's validation or material yeah, things yeah. or whatever well the hungry ghost is a, a figure in buddhist cosmology oh cool you know where there are many realms of ex not only is there rebirth um in very kind of classical uh buddhist teaching but there's uh, many realms of existence you're not necessarily always reborn a human for example you might be reborn in a higher world or a lower world or you know you might be a tortoise or you might be a demigod or you know it's like there's, there's lots of possibilities and we kind of go round and round and round and round it's not linear like right. up and out so not know? linear so not like you're a cockroach then you work your way up to a lizard then you're a rat then you're a rabbit then you're a deer then you're an elephant then you're a, and so on and so not, on not necessarily no interesting yeah if you if you screw up and you're at at, at the state of an enlightened master and you're just about to break through to possible not reincarnated and then you kill or rape or do something horrendous then in the in the buddhist spectrum would you then kind of re-enter at a lower thing and have to work back toward possibly i mean that, i mean it was one of the questions the buddha counseled you don't think about too much because you can't figure it out right right it's such a complex coming together of all these different conditions. He said, you'll just go crazy. So, <laughs> so don't even it. bother trying to figure it out. <laughs> just stay on the path. It's the That's thing right. we're just saying, like That's stay right. on the path. Don't worry about what happens. Right. So the hungry ghost is one okay. of those realms, okay. which is marked obviously by intense desire. And these beings who have like these tiny little mouths, you know, so they can never get like get enough. It's like that, you know? And so there are all these like outrageous pictures of them, you know, that graphic display of what that mind state is like. Wow, that is so, such an uncomfortable way to live. Yeah. I spent yeah. a lot of years in that. Yeah. Have you ever seen anyone overcome acute alcoholism or drug mm -hmm. addiction just purely with taking a Buddhist path? I mean, I consider the 12-step system a work of genius, you know, and uh, the languaging, you know, is not for everybody. Yeah. Uh, Fairly uh, Judeo-Christian. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's that doesn't, maybe work for everybody just in terms of language but the actual system i think is just brilliant you know fellowship and helping others and uh you know it's just amazing. would you say that the system of the 12 steps have have a, a lot in common um in in principle to buddhism uh that's what i hear you know like yeah. uh and I, I think that's probably true although i think it's in terms of structure and and kind of manifestation it's actually it's way ahead of Buddhism in this country because of the community aspect, you know, and right. the ways people kind of come together and help each other. I've often said, I wish there was a 12-step group for everything. 
right? You know, right, like every yeah, yeah. part of the human condition. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. Always, I've often thought that too. That there, there could really be a group for like thinkers anonymous yeah you know? exactly everybody you take anyone on the street and say like are you you know are you powerless or do you have control and they say oh no i can do whatever i want go try to stop thinking you know how long does it take between thoughts yeah. it's like yeah. none of us have that ability yeah. right yeah. so have you ever seen you know in, in all of your retreats and all this stuff have you ever seen someone come in and be totally ignorant of or, or not choosing the path of say the 12 steps and come in and just thoroughly devote themselves mm -hmm. to the practice mm -hmm. and to the meditation and and be sort of release from that i think i have and i think an interesting thing to check out which i don't really know thoroughly or understand is alternative movements of recovery besides kind of classical 12 stuff like noah levine um uh has who wrote years ago he wrote this book dharma punks you know oh that? yeah so, i've heard about that yeah, yeah actually he's in ago. la yeah oh yeah someone yeah someone was uh, turning me on to that a few years ago and i never fully explored it but they yeah. were they were really excited about that you know so he has a whole movement of um what's it called something like refuge recovery it's, which i'm sure is a completely different languaging and right framing uh, whether it has some of the same elements i don't know but right uh you know he's starting that all over the country apparently and you know, so for people who are more drawn to that kind of framework, it's also existing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think that uh, within the twelve-step teachings and the literature, there, there's something uh, in there that says we don't have a monopoly on this thing. Which I, I I'm so glad that that is yeah. in there. Yeah. Because yeah. if it was like this is the only way, then no one would do it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. and it's something that's also brilliant about the twelve steps is it really is all about God, which. Again, they're ninety percent of the people would be like, "Bye, I'm out of here," but they were clever enough to throw in this one little line that says, "Of your understanding, of your own understanding." So it's like whatever you choose to be something yeah. bigger and greater than yourself, which I think is yeah. really why it's lasted yeah. and has yeah. proliferated all over the world and helped uh -huh, so many people. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So that's cool. I appreciate that you that you respect that path too. So in Buddhism, as you said, it's not really about like, "Oh, I believe in God." You're not like praying to yeah, God as yeah. this entity or this deity. What is your interpretation of God? And do you pray in the traditional sense? And if you do, what does that look like? Um, there are certainly Buddhist traditions in which you pray. I mean, Buddhism is, is so broad, you know. Right. Like I once, I was in LA actually, and I had breakfast with a rabbi, and I asked him a question about Judaism, some conference, you know. I asked him about Judaism, and he said, which Judaism? And That's I thought, funny, oh, yeah, that yeah. applies, you know. Right. It's like, there, are, especially Tibetan Buddhism, you do pray, or some some schools of Japanese Buddhism, you do pray. Other schools of Japanese Buddhism, it's like if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, you know. <laughs> it's not a really prayerful <laughs> yeah, approach, not. you know. So it can be very different. But um, basically, it, as I was taught, um, the Buddha was a human being, and the things he questioned about life are the things any of us might question, like where's happiness really to be found? What about suffering? And was I, am, am I as alone as it seems, as is portrayed? Um, would I be really happy if I were a king, you know, which is what my father wants me to do, that kind of thing. And it said that the answers he came to about life, he came to through the power of his own awareness, and so can we. So we look at a Buddhist statue and we see something about ourselves about the capacity of a human being to understand their lives and um, not be seeking control, to, to be really happy, really happy, 
to know love, to know wisdom, and so on. Uh, so we look at the Buddha as a representation of human possibility. And so in a way, looking at the Buddha, we're looking at ourselves. And it's not just like the Buddha and I who are doing great. You know, it's like we look at ourselves on that level, which is the level of our deepest potential, and we see everybody because everybody shares that potential. So that's the nature of that relationship. We look at the Buddha to see ourselves, and we look at ourselves to see all of life, to see all beings everywhere. And, and in the language, you know, Pali is the language of the original Buddhist text, so it's a language that southern schools of, of Buddhism usually use. A teacher uh, is not a guru, a teacher is a spiritual friend. That's you know, cool. So in, in the folk religion, sort of in Burma, yeah, you would pray to the Buddha, or you know, but you wouldn't like in the monasteries so much. You that's know. very that's very inviting, I think, to a lot of people probably that, you know, from more of the Hindu perspective, you go sit in darshan before you guru, yeah. and if you're lucky enough to kiss his feet, you know, you had a good day, right? So this is this is very different than yeah. from that perspective. Yeah. So there's not so much uh, there's a reverence for the teacher and a respect, yeah. of course, but not so much a worship. That's right. That's right. Okay, that's interesting. Fascinating stuff. This is so fun because this, as I said, this is a path I I know very little about. I mean, I listen yeah. to you and other, you know, Buddhism-based teachers, but it's all mm -hmm. it's all sort of new and uh, and the languaging as well. So, I guess in a sense, then in terms of God, that energy or that type of prayer is almost represented by practicing loving kindness. Yeah. To where you're sort of reflecting the higher self mm -hmm. within you and with others through that practice. Right. Like how right. you often talk about, you know, going into a store and there's a clerk yeah. there. And are, yeah. are you just ignorant of the fact that they have a life and they're a human being and they're just serving a purpose in a mechanical kind of way? Yeah. Or are you able yeah. to really look in their eyes and, right. and share that moment? So inherent to that moment is identifying God. Yeah. Could you say? You could. I personally would not <laughs> you don't contextualize in that I, way i don't contextualize in that way but I, okay you know i mean it, it's just language you know yeah, yeah it's yeah. just one way of verbalizing it yeah so so many windows all going into the same yes, house <laughs> yeah. you'd say found you know our interconnectedness or right kind of uh the bigger fabric of life you know of which we are all a part or whatever in the, in the vedic system there's this perspective that there's only one thing, universally. Everything is this one thing, and that we're individual expressions of that one thing. Does Buddhism share that perspective? Uh, here, Trungpa Rinpoche actually talked about a unity of emptiness, not that wow. we're one thing, but wow. that at the core of who we are is, uh, I don't know how to describe it, you know, like... Um, Nothing solid and uh, congealed, or, but it's like uh, energy or space right. or something like that. Right. And potentiality. Mm. You know, the potential for wisdom, for compassion, and so on. So it's like a, that potentiality, uh, which is the energy in a way. That's cool. It's sort of like the the extreme non-dual point of view that at a certain point the witness and the observed <laughs> sort of disappear right that's heavy yeah, stuff yeah, yeah that's heavy stuff i dig that yeah. wow this is fun <laughs> this is fun i love this stuff man. I, could, I could do this all day honestly this is this is the this is the juice for me so 
your book real love right which just came out in june i have a copy of it in my bag which don't let me forget to have her sign that please very meaningful uh i think a lot of people have different ideas about what love is oh and, yeah <laughs> you know and you're and you're exploring that and i think if, if you would have asked me 10 years ago you know define love it would be like oh it's this feeling that you have when you care about someone or it's your girlfriend or you know something like that even more of a romantic love or familial love or something like that where are you at with that term right now in your life real love is my 10th book and many of them have been about love about kindness about compassion and so on so obviously it's something i think about all the time um these days, I would probably define love as connection, a profound sense of connection to ourselves and, and to others, maybe an other and maybe all, all others. Um, I uh, think it's very different than liking somebody or approving of somebody. Um, I don't even think it has to be an emotion. As of course, in pop culture, it's an emotion and it's something we yearn for and so right, on. Right, like the love song. Yeah, right, you know, right. I think it's like, it's sort of recognizing ourselves and one another it's like that moment if you're talking to a stranger and you're really distracted and you're thinking about your email and then you realize that and you arrive it's that moment where there's that just kind of simple connection so it doesn't necessarily mean a certain form you know you're going off into the sunset together or it's romantic or you're uh you know the love is not the commitment the commitment may follow the love or the form the structure may follow Love, or maybe you never see each other again, you know, but in that moment, there was a connection. In terms of love that's not conditional, so I love you as long as you're doing X, Y, Z, and if you mm -hmm. stop doing that, then I withdraw my love. Or loving someone who's maybe caught in a lower state of being, someone who's predominantly negative or perhaps even evil. How can one maintain a level of forgiveness and unconditional love for someone but still not agree with them or perhaps decide not to participate in an interaction with them mm -hmm. in other words loving someone from afar and not and not condoning yeah, yeah. their behavior if their behavior is yeah. inappropriate yeah i mean there there are a few things that come to my mind around that one is i don't think we will maintain anything I think like just like in that exercise of being with our breath we blow it and then we start over right you know, we're not going to maintain anything. Okay, I think that, good, good, good. Yeah. That's kind of overly idealistic for the truth of our... I tend to be that way, yeah. Okay, <laughs> you know. But then we start punishing ourselves because it's like we didn't maintain... Right, because we didn't meet our own that's standards right. or expectations. That's right. Okay, cool. So I would reframe that. Got you it. Know, like, and right off the bat, I'd separate the state of love from the action. You know, like there is such a thing as tough love. There is such a thing as fierce compassion. We might genuinely be feeling inside love care compassion and for whatever reason our best guess of the most appropriate way to respond in a certain moment in time in a certain context is saying no it's having a strong boundary it's like no i'm not going to give you the money or you know you can't move back in or you know totally i'm f i'm yeah. familiar with with that yeah, in terms yeah. of codependency and exactly. specifically if you think exactly. about a drug addict like hey that's you know right. can i stay at your place i just got out of jail again yeah that's right it would actually be a disservice to them yeah. to give them a, a, yeah. another cushion or a, a runway yeah. Yeah. to keep hurting themselves. That's right. You know, so that's so, more of your tough love. Yeah, so you know, I think that's a mental discipline to keep reminding ourselves the action and the interstate are not the same. 
you know, we come hopefully from a more, more and more of a place of love and care. And the action is based on discernment. It's like paying attention, you know, and we make mistakes for sure, but um, that's why I call it our best guess, <laughs> you know, about yeah. the most skillful way to act. And it's always in right. the context. It's not a formula. Right. Like you, the only loving thing to do is say yes. That's not true. Yeah. Right. So. so yeah, we you make really a lot don't of like relativism. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> Me and, uh, That's good. You know, yeah. So we we really do make an effort to separate those two. You know, the interstate from the action. Right. And even the word unconditional, I'm not totally sure. It's like there's a generosity to love, and we can see when there are big strings attached that it's different. And. If you really want to understand that, don't even think about loving someone else. Think about loving yourself. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. As long as I do that perfectly. As long as, you know, uh, I don't skip a word when I'm giving the speech. Just whatever it is, you know, and it's, uh, it's so um, fraught. It's so fragile that it really is not going to sustain us through the inevitable ups and downs of life. And so that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of yours. You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. Mm -hmm. God, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... So good. I mean, I have heard that as, a, as from the Buddha. Some people refute that you know there's some site like the buddha never really said that or whatever it's on there apparently but uh there are versions of that that you can you can source you know from that so think of that you know yeah. is that amazing yeah yeah it's beautiful i mean i get chills just reading i think that's why i put it in my notes i was like i gotta yeah. cover that yeah because i think that's something that's been challenging for me i since i was a little kid i was pretty kind-hearted toward other people I, i've never really been too mean to mm -hmm. other people but god i've been horrendously evil to myself you know so that's been like a huge lesson for me is to learn mm -hmm. how to be more loving with myself and accepting of myself mm -hmm. and it's it's really difficult to do actually it mm -hmm. takes a lot of practice so yeah i appreciate that perspective very much so what about the role of romantic and love relationships in your life has that been something that you've explored and learned from or something that you've sort of put aside in, in favor of your, your career and helping people and, and pursuit? I don't know that I've consciously put aside. I've had romantic relationships and uh, it's been a while. And my joke was that, it, you know, if I was going to get involved with somebody, it needed to be somebody, you know, who satisfied other needs of mine. So, uh, I mean, I haven't closed the door on the possibility of a romantic relationship, but I don't have a sense of longing, you know. Uh, I feel my life is really complete and busy, too. You know, it would take a lot to... I can tell. ...to add something else in. I can totally tell that, yeah. So it's like open-minded, but you feel whole in yeah, and of yourself. I do. I do. And I guess one really has to have that sense in order to be open to having something healthy and fulfilling come in. If you're looking to complete yourself with someone else which yeah, i've tried kind of it, yeah that yeah. shit does not work yeah. yeah you're gonna call in people that are perhaps not serving your highest purpose okay so as we come to the end of the interview which i'm so gracious for thank you again uh, i've got a three-part question who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced you and your work that you might be able to point our audience to um i had a woman teacher named Deepama. somebody actually wrote a Deepa was a nickname, Deepa's mother, but somebody actually wrote a book about her. 
uh, Deepa, D-I-P-A, Ma, M-A, and she's the person who told me to teach, so she changed my whole life, you know, uh, very powerfully. Um, my first teacher was Goenka, and uh, one can also explore his um, views on life and, and happiness and so on through books and um, or through courses that, you know, that exist. And um, I, I have a current teacher, actually, uh, a younger Tibetan teacher named Sokni, T-S-O-K-N-Y-I Rinpoche. Rinpoche. Yeah, <laughs> another Rinpoche. Rinpoche. Okay. Uh, who has, I mean, he travels to the States and around Europe and places teaching retreats, but he also has a few books out, um, which uh, I think conveys some of the sense of what it's like to be with him. That's awesome. I also think it's yeah. really cool that you have a teacher that's younger than yourself. Yeah, I know. I think it's cool, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, that's neat. That's neat. It shows uh, it's difficult. You don't want to compliment someone for having humility, but I'll just go ahead and do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of like a paradox, but that definitely represents that you're teachable and humble. So where can we find your websites? Uh, your book is Real Love. It's just out a couple months. We want people to buy that. What about social media sites? Anywhere you want to send our audience? Um, my website is SharonSalzberg.com. Just Salzburg spelled with an E, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R. Uh, and Twitter I'm at Sharon Salzberg and, and I think you can find me you know awesome thank you so much yeah. for your time Sharon it's great to see you thank you Now that, my friends, is what I call a good time. What a fantastic conversation. God damn, I am lucky. I must have some good karma, speaking of reincarnation. I really think I, I must have fed a bunch of starving children or some shit in the past life because the fact that I just got to go sit down in Sharon Salzberg's apartment and ask her about the nature of life and being is just astonishing to me. And what's even more astonishing really is uh, that I get to record them and share them with you. So thank you so much for joining me on another show. We're almost up to 100 episodes. And in fact, as I said earlier, this Friday, I'll be celebrating episode 100 with a special bootleg broadcast of myself live on the Sunset Strip, where I give my second public talk about spirituality and metaphysics. It's pretty damn cool, I gotta say, because I just kind of like got there at 10.30 in the morning, they threw a mic on me, and I just started talking about everything I've discovered in the last 12, almost 21 years now of spiritual exploration. So it was a very liberating experience for me to go talk in front of a bunch of people, a bunch of listeners to the shows, uh, to the show included. But what was perhaps even more uh, liberating was the fact that I got to put it out as a podcast episode. You know, it was a very sort of vulnerable, fun thing for me to do, to say, hey, listen, this is who I am. You hear from my guests on the show and from me to a degree, but this Friday is an opportunity for me to really share uh, my heart and what's most meaningful to me at this point in my life. So thank you so much for joining me and Sharon on this show today. Please tune in Friday. Don't forget to just subscribe to the show. That makes it really easy. That's what I do with my favorite podcast because I don't want to like have to log in and go look at their account to see what's new. I have probably four or five that I listen to on a regular basis that I've subscribed to. And that way, every time I pick up my phone, it's like, ding, 
you have a new episode from Daniel Vitalis or Dave Asprey or whoever it is that I happen to be listening to. Actually, you know what? I'm subscribed to Sharon Salzberg's podcast. Of course. Duh. That's a really good one too. Jump right to that. All right. Anyway, there we go. I'm out. Peace, peace. Be with you. And uh, don't forget to meditate today, okay? I hope you're inspired after this interview. (laughs) Bye. Okay, before you drift off into Never Never Land, don't forget to come check out my next speaking engagement at Noya House Hollywood, November 2nd, from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m., followed by Mercado Sagrado on November 4th and 5th. To get into these events and for all other information about anywhere that I'm appearing, you can always go to lukestory.com forward slash events for registration and more information. That's lukestory.com forward slash events. I will see you soon. Okay, now that we've wrapped up another episode and are even more inspired to live a healthy, happy lifestyle, I want to remind you to go to Organifi.com. That's spelled with an I, Organifi.com. Check out the green juice powder. It's fantastic. And what's even more fantastic is that if you enter the code lifestylist at checkout, you're going to save a whopping 20% off your order. Go to Organifi.com, enter the code lifestylist, save 20%. 